Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. Good to see you. If you've got a Bible, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter three, starting in verse 10, which is kind of a weird passage, but we're gonna work through it together. Now, if you have a significant other, at some point you've probably used some sort of sweet name or some sort of pet name for that person. You might call them sugar, you might call them honey, you might call them dear, whatever it is. And these names are not just terms of endearment. They're also kind of these indicators of the person's personality. So if they're really sweet, you might call them sugar. Well, I looked up some different pet names online and I found the following ones. Snugglekins, okay, is one. I like to assume that that's like a jacked, tatted up guy that just got out of prison and his wife calls him Snugglekins. Gummy bear, my little gummy bear. That one's kind of weird. Dimple king. Sounds like a place where you get smoothies. Snickers, right? Come over here, Snickers. Good to see you, Snickers. That's one. Snookums. Chubby Bunny, which seems to insinuate something else. It'd be used in a sentence like, how about we get a gym membership, my chubby bunny? Something like that. You have that one? But isn't it just today? This is something that people have always done. So Martin Luther, the German reformer, his wife, Katerina von Bora, he would call her by pet names. He called her Lord Katie as if to show this respect. He would also, in light of the Adam and Eve story, call her my rib. So I don't know what you call your spouse, but maybe guys start calling your wife my rib. Now, Christ, being married to the church, also has these names for his church that aren't just kind names. They also indicate something about the church. The church is called many things in scripture, okay? The assembly, the elect, Christ's bride, the temple, holy priesthood, new creation, the people of God, the household of God, the Israel of God, For those of you that are dispensational, notice that the Bible calls the church Israel. One loaf, the pillar and buttress of truth, citizens with the saints, and many more. And so what we're gonna do today is the Apostle Paul is gonna take this name, this title, this image that's been given for the church. It was actually given by uh, Jeff last week in his sermon, and it comes out of 1 Corinthians 3.9, and he's gonna build on this metaphor. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says this, for we are God's fellow workers, talking about ministers, apostles, whatever, You are God's field, God's building. So what Paul is gonna do is he's gonna take this image of this building and this entire text, he's gonna use that as a metaphor for the church. Now, before we get into this text, let me just clarify something because this can be be confusing. Paul is gonna give the analogy of building up a building, but the church itself is not a building. You understand that, right? Isn't it good to be here in God's house? No, because this is not God's house. You're God's house. God doesn't live in McKinney, though we have a beautiful city. He lives in the hearts of his people. He's everywhere. So as he's talking about building building up the church, do not think church building. Every single time the word church in the New Testament is used, ecclesia is the Greek term, never does it refer to a building. It always refers to a people. We are where God dwells. He dwells in the hearts of his elect. And so keep that in mind. As Paul's using this imagery of building up the church, it is meant to be a metaphor for building up people, building up the assembly, building up the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, let's pray and then we'll get into verse 10. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit. We confess that you are kind and you are great and you are merciful and uh, we are broken and we are sinful. And so we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. You have given us so many rules that we have failed, pretty much all of them. Would you, and yet you love us. You care for us. You've sent Christ to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die. And so we ask that you would be with us, that you would encourage us. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's start here in uh, verse 10. 
First part of verse 10, 10a, here he goes. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let's do a little background work because this is a weird text. Back in Greece, it was very much like it is today in America where people want to exalt self. That's what the Greeks did. So everybody wanted to be thought to be smart, thought to be progressive, thought to be enlightened. They wanted to be good speakers. They exalted rhetoricians and rhetors, these people who are eloquent. People wanted to be strong and physically fit and they had the Olympic games. People wanted to be wealthy. So much of life was trying to get other people to see how awesome you are, just like today. Okay, just like today. And so what would happen is there were these people in Greece that you could hire that were these professional rhetoricians. They were these professional public speakers. They were kind of the celebrities for their day and they were called sophist. Okay, the Greek word sophia means wisdom. So the sophist are these people that at least appear to be wise and you could hire them out. You could hire a sophist to defend you in court. You could hire a sophist to give a speech for politics. You could hire a sophist for some sort of business party. And they were the celebrity. They were the John Leno that would show up to the party and make people laugh and that's what they would do. And they got a bad reputation because a lot of them would just argue whatever point you wanted, whether it was true or not, just so they could make their money. And so what happens is as Paul is writing, he's writing to a culture that exalts eloquence, that exalts self, that exalts all these kind of public speakers that are so smart and so talented. And Paul comes in with a different message And Paul's not a rhetorician, though he's very intelligent, and he comes in and he just preaches Christ. And so there's this opposition going on here in Corinth. Paul has some opponents that are wanting the gospel all to be about self. You see that in the church at Corinth. They're even taking things like their spiritual gifts and making it all about them. And the apostle Paul is saying, that's not Christianity. Christianity is not the exaltation of self. It is the denial of self. Christianity is all about Christ and him crucified. Christianity is not about being a good person. Christianity is not about how awesome you are. Christianity is about the fact that you are not a good person and Christ has come to save bad people. And so Paul says that is the foundation. And so he's having to defend that. So he's giving this analogy of this foundation of Christ and he's building up upon it, okay? Now notice the analogy he used there. According to the grace of God given me like a skilled master builder. Now, I'll give you a few examples here. Paul's gonna use a construction analogy. Now, I am not very handy, Okay, I do not, I, I can't fix a car. I can do little things around the house, but I am not handy. My dad and I, when I was younger, we tried to build a dog house, which you would think would be a simple enough project, but we're kind of measure once, cut twice kind of people. And so the wood's not quite lining up and we didn't quite measure it right. By the time we were done, we had a 24 square foot dog mansion that the dog wouldn't even go in, probably because he saw the shoddy worksmanship and he's like, I'm not going in there. That's gonna collapse. And it was too big to move. So when we moved, we just left it in the backyard for whoever bought the house. They can deal with it. That's not our problem, okay? So there's a guy right now who's a buddy of mine at the church named Chuck and he's helping me do some repairs on my house because I don't know. But I, I go along with him because I like to think that I'm helping, but I'm not really helping. So he'll be like, Zach, hand me a screwdriver. And I'm like, you got it, Chuck. Let me get that for you. The screwdriver's this one. This is a screwdriver? I know what a screwdriver is. So I hand him something and he's like, this is a toothbrush. This is not a screwdriver. I was like, I'll get the screwdriver. You hit the nails with the screwdriver? I'll get it for you. Now, though I'm involved in the process, I'm not doing any of the building. He's really the one doing the stuff. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Notice when he says, according to the grace of God given me. Paul's not saying the sophists were great speakers, but I'm an even better speaker. 
These other guys, these other guys with other ministries that aren't Christianity, they're awesome, but I'm more awesome. Paul says, I'm not really doing the building. I'm not really the one doing the stuff. The one who's doing the stuff is God. God is the one who's really doing the building. I'm standing there, I'm handing him the wrong tool, but it's really God who is the one who is doing the things. A few things to notice here, the first part of verse 10. That word skilled in your English Bible in Greek is actually the word wisdom, right? Sophia, Paul here is using this play on words. These guys think they're so wise, building in worldly wisdom. The one who's truly wise, the one who's truly building in a wise way is the one building upon the gospel like Paul is doing. But simply what he's saying here is that Paul is like a foreman, okay? Paul is like uh, someone who is overseeing the construction site and these different people that are building up the church are working under him. He's kind of seen as this foreman and these other people are building up the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, look at this, to equip the saints, that's you guys, for the work of ministry. For building, there's the language, up the body of Christ. Or Ephesians 2.20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Look at the construction analogy. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what he's saying is, I'm overseeing the church as it's being built. The church is not a building, but he's using a building analogy as the church, the people are being built up. And Jesus is the cornerstone. Without that, you have no church. On top of that, you have the foundation, which is the prophets and the apostles. Why do we teach the Bible every Sunday at Parkway? Because the Old Testament is the prophets and the New Testament is the apostles. And the Bible says that's the foundation. And then each of us are like a little brick on that house. And that is God's temple. That is where God dwells within his people. Now, at the very end here, he says, laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. That's probably a positive statement. Someone like Apollos. Remember, the Corinthians, in an attempt to exalt themselves, are attaching themselves to their favorite celebrity pastor, Paul or Apollos or Cephas or whoever. And what Paul is gonna have to do is he's gonna say, listen, I laid a foundation of Jesus and there are other people who are building on that and that's good and okay. What's important, as Jeff mentioned last week, is not the preacher, it's the message, It's the message. So this is probably a positive statement. Those building on this foundation are those like Apollos. But it's also a warning to anyone who would build improperly on the foundation, which we'll see him have to correct as we go. Verses 10b through 11. Okay, so he gave us this kind of construction analogy. Now it starts to get weirder and more interesting. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I want you to see a few things here. First of all, notice that phrase, each one, okay? Notice that phrase, if you've got it in your Bible, you can underline that little phrase, each one. That kind of individualistic language is going to occur eight times in these verses. It's gonna say each one, no one, anyone, each one's, each one, anyone, anyone's, he himself. It's very specific, Okay, all throughout this text, just these few verses that we're dealing with today, two things I want you to see about this, okay? First of all, though the church is corporate, you will be judged as an individual. How you build upon this foundation of Christ, you will stand before God to give an account for all the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, as the Bible would say, and your only hope is Jesus. Your only hope is that you know Jesus. Your hope cannot be that you belong to a church, that's not good enough. Your hope cannot be in the sacraments that you've been baptized or you take communion. That's not good enough. Your hope cannot be that you're a good church person and you read your Bible. That's not it. Though you belong to the church, unless you know Christ, everything else is is for naught. 
As one of our elders, Wade Catlin, often says, God has children but no grandchildren. You don't coast in on the faith of your parents. You don't get it by osmosis. So notice that individualistic language here. The other thing I wanna say is this. There's a big debate in New Testament scholarship over whether or not this passage is just addressing ministers or if it's addressing the average Christian. What some will say is the context is Paul, Apollos, these guys who are building up the church. It's just about ministers, okay? Now, I think a good case can be made for that, but I think by logical implication, this text would apply to the average Christian, to anyone who's involved building up Christ's church, which you are. When you lead a Bible study, when you pray with people, when you evangelize, when you lead a community group, whatever it is, you are involved in the work of ministry and therefore this text isn't just for pastors and preachers, it is for the average Christian. As you live your life, to some extent, you're building upon this foundation of Christ and this text addresses you. Now look at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul's gonna say. If your foundation is Christ and him crucified, the person and work of Jesus, you may build upon that foundation well or poorly, but at least you have the right foundation. If somebody, though, has a completely different foundation, they're not even a Christian. Let me say it another way. What is the difference between a Christian denomination and a cult or another religion? Do you know what the difference is? Christian denominations, though we vary and differ on small areas of theology, the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian or Assemblies of God or whatever, they have the same foundation. They have the same view of Christ, the same view of the Trinity, the same view of resurrection, all these important doctrines, that foundation is the same and where they differ is on minor issues. They differ on minor things, okay? So so their buildings look a little different, their people look a little different, but they have the right foundation. What makes something a cult or a different religion is that it has a completely different foundation. The Jesus they're building on is not the Jesus of the Bible. The God that they worship is not the God of the Bible. That's why whether it's Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Oneness Pentecostals or whatever it is, or other religions, Islam, Hinduism, whatever it is, those are not Christianity at all. They're not denominations or variants of Christianity. They're not Christianity at all because they have a completely different foundation. If your foundation is not the historic, orthodox, biblical view of one God who's three persons eternally. Or if your view of Christ is not that he's one person who's fully and truly God and fully and truly man, you're building on a different foundation. A foundation for one building doesn't work as well for for another building. Let me give you an example. I knew of a church up in Seattle that was turning a strip club into a church, which is awesome, right? They bought out this rundown strip club and they were gonna turn it into a church, which is a cool triumph of light over darkness. But here's the problem. Do you know how much construction goes into that? A lot. The church and what the church needs and its foundation and its plumbing and its electricity is very different than what's needed in a strip club. So they thought this will be an easy project and it was a nightmare because it was a completely different foundation. They had to do foundation work. They had to remove a lot of stuff. They found a dead body in the attic. I kid you not. Different building, okay? So what Paul is trying to say is, people who are trying to lay another foundation other than Jesus, whatever they're doing, it's not the same building. It's not Christianity. Within Christianity, there's, there's freedom. Within Christianity, some people's building will be better than others, but at least they have the right foundation. But what they can't do is build upon an entirely different foundation. 
verses 12 through 13. Now here's where it starts getting confusing. This is a weird text. He's mentioning like gold and he's talking about fire and works being burned up and we get all stressed. What does this mean? Let's start unpacking it here where it really gets weird in verses 12 through 13. Now if anyone builds on the foundation, okay, we know that's Jesus, he said that, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, dash mark, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, capital day, D there for day means judgment day, the day of reckoning, that kind of idea. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Okay, let's start with verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. If you're confused so far, clear your mind, take a big breath, let's just summarize. Jesus is the foundation of the church and as we live our lives and do ministry, we're building on top of that foundation. And here, what Paul's gonna do is he's gonna give two different sets of materials. On the one hand, you have gold, silver, and precious stones. On the other, you have wood, hay, and straw. Do you agree that those are different categories? Okay, I want you to notice a few things about them. First of all, the first ones are valuable. Gold, silver, and precious stones, they matter. They have value. The second ones do not matter. They are not valuable, okay? They're very, very common. The other thing I want you to see is that those first three are what's used in building up God's temple in the Old Testament, Solomon's temple. It has silver pillars and it has golden inlays and it has all these beautiful stones. The same thing is true when the New Jerusalem, the new temple, if you will, is mentioned in the book of Revelation. It has streets of gold. The walls are composed of these different precious stones. That's the idea. So, so this kind of imagery of gold, silver, and precious stones, you should think temple. You should think where God dwells. Though God is everywhere because God is omnipresence, the Jews could especially feel his presence in the temple. That temple is destroyed. We are now the temple of God. That is where you find God's presence within the hearts of believers. But the third thing that I want you to see, and this is really the point of why Paul uses this. If you were to take these different materials, gold, silver, and precious stones, and wood, hay, and straw, and you were to test them with fire, you were to put fire up to them, one of them would last and the other ones would be perishable. They would burn up. If you don't believe me, take your wedding ring later and take a lighter and just put the lighter up to the wedding ring. It'll get a little smoky, you'll be fine. If you ruin your ring, don't call me. I don't know anything about metals, okay? So, it'll be fine. It's hard, yes, you can melt it if things get crazy hot, but it doesn't just catch on fire. But if you take that lighter and you go up to some dry straw, or some dry wood, it is gonna absolutely burn to the ground, okay? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying as we build upon this foundation of Jesus, we can either build with materials that will last, that will leave a lasting impact, or we can build with these materials that are worthless, that will be burned up, and we will have wasted our lives. So what does this mean for us? This is kind of a weird and out. What does it mean to live your life building on this foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones, versus living your life building with wood, hay, and straw. Let me give you some examples to make this relevant for the 21st century uh, as we apply it today. Let me give you some examples of building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Putting all your trust in Christ, loving Christ, loving the foundation. You wanna build a good building? Keep going back to the foundation. Keep looking at that foundation. Putting all your trust in Christ is building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Resting in grace is building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Christianity is not something you do, it's something you are. It is not about striving, it is about resting. One has already striven on your behalf, and so you are able to rest. 
Overlooking offenses and quelling division is building with gold, silver, and precious stones. You will not regret forgiving someone from your heart. Bible study, prayer, evangelism, serving others, that's all building Christ's kingdom with gold, silver, and precious stones. Those things all matter. They last. You're not gonna look back on your life when you're on your deathbed and be like, man, I wish I had prayed less. I wish I had served people less. These are all things that matter. These are all building up with not perishable materials, but imperishable. Not trying to grow your own kingdom is building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Being faithful to your spouse is building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Making Jesus look beautiful to your kids. Giving your anxieties to Jesus. Gospel things. These are the kind of things that you will not regret. These are the kind of things that matter. These are the kind of things that last. But some of us still know Jesus. We're still saved. We're still loved by God. But if you look at our life, we're really building up the church with wood, hay, and straw. These are some examples of what it looks like to build your life up with wood, hay, and straw. Causing division, like the Corinthians are doing. Where they're not exalting Christ, they're exalting self. Trying to be a somebody in the church is building with wood, hay, and straw, okay? Most of you guys do not have this problem. There are a few of you that want to be a somebody here. You want people to know who you are and know your name and you want to do all, that, that's, that's building with wood, hay, and straw. Exalting self. Making others think that you're smart or talented. That's what Paul's rebuking the Corinthians for. Wanting culture to accept you. This is what a lot of churches are doing right now. A lot of churches are capitulating to the way that culture is drifting because they want to seem relevant. They want to seem enlightened. And Paul's gonna say, when you're doing what culture does, being tossed to and fro, you're building with wood, hay, and straw. You're wasting your time. It's gonna be burned up. Using business managerial techniques to run the church. There's nothing wrong with business. God invented business. Adam's job was to business, to subdue the earth, to garden, to do all these kind of things. But that's not the way that the church is built up. The church is not about finance and money and efficiency. The church is about discipleship and faithfulness. Wasting your life by making a ton of money is building with wood, hay, and straw. Now, there's nothing wrong with you making money. I want you to make a bunch of money. I want you to give to Parkway once you've done it. That's what I want. I want you to make a bunch of money. Kill it. Kill it in the business world. But if you are wasting your life where this is the most important thing, the most important thing for me is just making as much money as I can, you're building with wood, hay, and straw, okay? Wasting your life by growing in fame and influence is wood, hay, and straw. Living a works-based type of righteousness is building with wood, hay, and straw. Your righteousness is given to you by Christ. You cannot earn it. Focusing on church growth is building on with wood, hay, and straw. Trying to help others self-esteem. What a lot of churches do, their messages are just inspirational speeches to grow your self-esteem. God does not give a flying flip. There, I didn't say any bad words. God does not give a flying flip about your self-esteem. Cursed is the man who trusts in man who makes flesh his strength. God is about God-esteem. He doesn't want you trusting in self and feeling good about self. He wants you feeling good about him. That's building with wood, hay, and straw. Legalism and moralism is building with wood, hay, and straw. And then here's another one. Distracting the elders or the mission of the church by trying to promote your personal hobby ministry or organization. All of that would be building with wood, hay, and straw. So what Paul is gonna do is he's gonna say, as we are, we're Christians, we're saved, we're building on the right foundation, but our lives do matter to God. And whether or not we leave a legacy, whether or not we're faithful does matter to God. Build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Let me give you an example. 
Imagine that you're in a dream. Okay, so first of all, I hate dreaming because dreams freak me out because when I'm having a dream, there are people there and I'm in a location and I think it's real. And then I wake up and I say, how do I know this isn't just like that? And it freaks me out, okay? So I don't like dreaming. My favorite way to sleep is where I just go to sleep and I don't wake up at all for eight hours and I have no dreams. I know you have them scientifically, but you don't remember them. I have no dreams and I wake up and I'm surprised I'm not dead. That's my favorite way to sleep where I just wake up and I'm like, where am I? Oh, that was a great sleep. That's what I love. But sometimes you're having a dream and then other times, you ever had the dream where you know that you're dreaming, right? We've all had those, I think. We had the dream where all of a sudden in the dream you realize, I'm dreaming. And then you can do whatever you want. You can fly, you can run super fast, you can do whatever, okay? Now imagine that you have this dream and you realize it's a dream and you say, you know how I'm gonna spend my dream? I'm gonna spend all my dream trying to exalt myself in my dream world. I'm gonna work really hard in my dream. I'm not gonna relax, I'm not gonna have fun, I'm not gonna fly. I'm gonna work really hard in my dream world to make as much dream money as I can. I'm gonna send out all these tweets and all this, these Instagram posts and all this kind of stuff in my dream so that all these dream people will think that I'm awesome. I'm gonna build a huge dream house and I waste my entire dream, which is like eight hours but only five minutes in dream time. But I do all of this trying to build up this dream world. And at the end of the dream, I have a huge house and I've got a ton of money and everybody thinks that I'm awesome. And then I wake up. We would all say, what a waste of a dream. You knew it was a dream. You knew it was going away. You knew you couldn't keep it and that's what you did. Now look at me. Your life compared to eternity is just like that dream. That's the way the Bible would describe it. Let me give you this example. James 4.14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Listen to this. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's all you are compared to God. That's all you are compared to eternity. You are a mist. You're a vapor. You're an evanescence. Your regular life compared to eternity is shorter than that dream analogy. But so many of us forget that and we think the goal is self-exaltation now. I must be great, I must build my kingdom, I must make a ton of money, I must make it all about me. And Paul is saying, don't, that's building with wood, hay, and straw. If you've wanted to know why our culture is so weird and why we became so weird so fast, it's because we've, we've gotten rid of a biblical and a theological way of thinking. You see, if you don't believe in an afterlife, you don't believe in a resurrection, then you have to get everything now. You have to make all your money now. You have to have all your sexual experiences. You have to express yourself however you want. You have to have everybody like you. If there is no future reward, no future glory that God will give you, you have to try to get glory now and that's why everyone is freaking out because they are saying YOLO. You only live once. To which we as Christians reply, no, YOLT or something. You only live twice, there's a resurrection. There's judgment, there's eternal life. You don't have to try to get all the fun in this life that you can because there's eternal bliss waiting for you. That's why our culture wants to lock people up just on accusations. There's no future judgment, so we have to have perfect judgment now. That's why everyone has acted so weird during COVID season, okay? Normal precautions are okay, but the reason people have acted so weird is because it is an entire worldview. We're the first generation who thought we might not die. We're the first generation who thought the goal of life should be to avoid death at all costs. Now listen to me, that is not a Christian view. 
the Christian view is not to avoid death at all costs because there's a 100% failure rate with that with humans. The role of the Christian is to die well. The role of the Christian is to die bravely. The role of the Christian is to say, I'm not afraid of dying because I will be resurrected. Not to hunker down in your house indefinitely. And so the reason the world is so weird is because they, their whole life has to be wood, hay, and straw, but they don't have the Jesus Foundation because they don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe that there's a perfect judge who will fix all this. And if you're wondering why the world is so weird, it's because Christians have a different worldview than the lost, unbelieving world. Verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Let's talk about this revealing, manifest disclosure language. Our worship minister, Tim Hollis, is good at a lot of things, but one of the things you might not know that he's good at is scaring people. Okay? It is an art for him. He's incredible at scaring people. And so what he will do is if one of us is up here practicing a sermon during the week, he will like come in these back doors, video himself scaring us. So we're in here preaching to chairs. There's no one in here and we're working on sermons and all of a sudden he's like, Rah! and he scares us and it's hilarious. Okay? I've even seen him do it before coming in these front doors. So I'll be working on a sermon and I'll see a little door back there just kind of crack open. Not big enough for a human to get through but it'll crack open a little bit and then I'm like, is, is somebody there? Hello? Must just be the wind. And he hides behind the sound booth and then what he does is he moves from pillar to pillar when you turn like a Navy SEAL. So I'm working on the sermon and I turn, da -da 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 -da. you hear footsteps? What's happening? I turn, da -da 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 -da. and then he jumps out and scares you, okay? Now sometimes though, it becomes manifest. Sometimes he's behind something and I see like his elbow hang out. And then all is revealed. All is known. His works are shown to be what they are. Wood, hay, and straw in the scaring business. And so I see his arm and I say, Tim, I know you're in here. And then he still doesn't move. Like I'm lying. So then I have to walk around and say, there you are. Okay, I see. All right. One time, one more, one more Tim scare thing and then we'll move on. One time he hid under my desk and I did not know it. So I sit down at my desk and there's a grown man. Now, under my desk. And he doesn't scare me right away. He waits a little bit. So I start opening my computer, opening my books, and then he grabs my leg. Ah! And guys, I was, let's just say I was scared. I was scared. I don't expect my leg to get grabbed under my desk by a grown man ever. Okay? So, but sometimes it's revealed. I see it. I see where it's going. I see the door crack open, I see an elbow hanging out from the wall, and I know. What, what, what the Bible here is gonna say is that all that we do is going to be revealed by God. You're gonna stand before God, in a sense, spiritually naked, and all your good works will not cover you, all your trying to do your stuff will not cover you. You will stand before God to give an account, and as he looks at your life, will you have built your life with gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw? Now notice this has nothing to do with salvation. This is not saying that you better live your life and build up with gold or else you're going to hell. These are still talking about Christians. It's that foundation that you did not lay, which is what saves you. This is just talking about worldly faithfulness, okay? To say it another way, all of human life is either a decision that you live for God or you live for self. Every decision is either for God or it's for self. To disobey God is to obey self. To disobey self is to obey God. Every decision you make, your primary enemy is not the devil. He's just this created angel, you know, doing whatever. Your greatest enemy is you. Your greatest enemy is your sin. 
Nobody has hurt you and lied to you more than you. That's your biggest problem is that we're, we're turned inward on ourselves. We don't want to exalt God. We want to exalt self. And what this text is saying is that when you live a life building with gold, silver, and precious stones, you exalt God. A life lived for self, like the Corinthians are doing, is a life built on wood, hay, or built with wood, hay, and straw. I'll give you an example. In Herman, uh, Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick, which I think is probably the greatest piece of American fiction writing ever, there's a scene where Ishmael, the main character, is about to go on a whaling voyage, but he stops at a chapel there in town. He stops to hear a sermon from the pastor, a guy named Father Mapple, and he stops to hear this sermon from this pastor, and what text of the Bible do you think this pastor is gonna preach out of to a bunch of guys going on a whaling voyage? Yeah, it's Jonah, it's Jonah. And by the way, the sermon is incredible, right? Melville was not a pastor, so I read it and I thought, this is amazing. But he has a great line when he's preaching to these men who are about to go on this dangerous voyage, and here's a line from his sermon. He says this, but all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, he more often commands us than endeavors to persuade. Listen to this next part. And if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. That's what Paul, Paul is saying. You can either build with gold, silver, and precious stones, Godward, or you can obey self and build with wood, hay, and straw like the Corinthians are doing. Yes, they're building on the foundation of Christ. Yes, they're still saved, but all their ministry is a waste because it's all about them. It's all about self-exaltation. So in light of that, let me ask some convicting questions to you. Number one, are you living your life building up your kingdom or Christ's kingdom? Are you living your life building up your kingdom or Christ's kingdom? Are you using your money to build up your kingdom or Christ's kingdom? Are you using your gifts to build up your kingdom or Christ's kingdom? Are you using your time to build up your kingdom or Christ's kingdom? Does your relationship with your spouse look like self-sacrificial love or are you frustrated because your spouse is not making you happy? Does your relationship with your kids make Christ look beautiful or are you raising your kids with the same pop psychology as lost people? On judgment day, what decisions that you are making now will you look back on with regret? On judgment day, not for salvation. For those that know Christ, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, you cannot earn it. But when you look back, when you're on your deathbed and you're looking back throughout your life, what decisions are you making today that you will regret? What is the main focus of your life? What do you spend the most time thinking about or worrying about? Even if you're a Christian, which is not something you do, it's something God does. Yes and amen, 100%. But as you look at your life, are you faithful? Are you building with gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw? Verses 14 through 15. Here's the weirdest part of the passage, the most confusing. A lot of people do not know what to do with verses 14 and 15, but you guys are at Parkway, so you get to know. Here we go. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What is happening here? Okay, let's talk about what this passage is not about, and then we'll talk about what it is about, okay? Here's what this, three things this passage is not about. First of all, this passage has nothing to do with you losing your salvation, okay? It was never your salvation to keep. It's God's salvation, and God always keeps his salvations that he gives people, okay? So this text has nothing to do, if you have fear in your heart, where you think, oh no, there's a lot in my life that's bad, maybe I'm not a Christian. That's not what this text is addressing, okay? That's true that if your life looks like unrepentant sin all the time, no matter what, and you don't care, maybe you're not regenerate, 
But that's not the point of this text. This text has nothing to do with whether or not you'll lose your salvation. Notice, he's talking about people, some whose work is burned up and some who's not, but it says that they're both saved. It explicitly says that, okay? So that's not what the text is about. This text is also not about varying degrees of reward in heaven. Now, that's an interesting theological question. Does God give some people varying uh, more reward in heaven than other people on the new heavens and new earth? That's a fascinating question, okay? And there's, there's good arguments made on both sides. Some will say, yes, there are things in the Bible that seem to show that God will give varying degrees of reward. There are others that say, no, when Jesus says great will be your reward in heaven, he doesn't mean in comparison to somebody else. He means in comparison to down here, doing your good works before men. If God is the source of infinite joy, and everyone has equal access to God in Christ, what would that even mean, okay? Now, I'm not getting into that debate. I can argue it from either side, but that's not the point of this text. Notice this text is not about reward in heaven. It's about evaluating what happened in your life and in your ministry when you were here on earth. So that's the other thing this text is not about. The third thing that it's not about it is, is not about the doctrine of purgatory. This is like the central Roman Catholic proof text for the idea of purgatory. What is purgatory? Okay, let's back up. We are Protestants. We are reformed, evangelical, Calvinistic Protestants. So what we hold is that when you repent and trust in Jesus, at that moment, you're 100% righteous. That, That Christ's righteousness is seen as belonging to you and your sin is seen as belonging to Jesus. At that moment, if you have a salvation cell phone, it goes from 0% righteous battery to 100% righteous battery in that moment. You go from sinner to saint, you go from hated by God to loved by God and adopted by God like that. That's our view of salvation, okay? That's not the Roman Catholic view of salvation. The Roman Catholic view of salvation is that it's progressive. The Roman Catholic, the justification, not sanctification, the justification is progressive. So what happens is, you know, if you have that righteousness cell phone that's at 0%, when you get infant baptized in Catholicism, it charges to 10%. And then when you partake of communion, it charges two more percent. And when you do penance and confess your sins to a priest, it charges three more percent. But what happens if you die and that righteousness cell phone is only charged to 80%? Ah, you gotta do something with that other 20%. And here's where you deal with it, purgatory. You go to a place called purgatory to purge you of that remaining defilement, that remaining 20% of sin. God is holy, he will not have a sinner in his presence. And so purgatory is not a bad thing in Catholicism. If you've made it to purgatory, you're gonna make it to heaven. Purgatory is not hell. It's not for lost people, it's for saved people. But you have to spend however long there before you can go into heaven. Now, go ahead and look at this text. Do you see any of that in there? No, this text has nothing to do with purgatory. The reason they came up with purgatory is because their view of salvation was wrong. Justification is a fiat moment that all the righteousness is given to you at that moment. You repent and trust in Christ, you're as righteous as Christ in God's eyes in that moment, okay? So it's not about purgatory. So what is the text actually about? Here's what it's actually about, and this is a weird text for us because we don't think this way. This text is saying, though you will still be saved, what you do in building up the church in this life matters. You you still want to leave the legacy. You still want to be faithful. You still want your works to outlive you. That's what this text is saying. Let me put on my nerd hat for a second. There's a very famous article written by a Harvard professor, New Testament professor named Christopher Stendhal, and it's called The Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. Okay, that's the nerdy thing I was gonna say. Here's what he argues in that, in that very famous article that it was put out a few decades ago. What he argues is when we read the Bible, we don't read it the way the Jews read the Bible. 
When we read the Bible as Westerners, we're so concerned with whether or not God's mad at us. We're so concerned with whether or not we'll go to hell. When we read the Bible, we read it very nervously. We read it like Martin Luther, the German reformer did, where we're nervous, we think we're going to hell, and we're trying to find a gracious God. So when we come to a text like this, we instantly think, wait, this is just talking about how our life down here matters? Who cares? If I'm already gonna be saved, I don't care. I'd rather be a janitor in heaven than rain in hell. Who cares, right? But the reason we say who cares is because we don't understand that God actually cares about what we do in this life. It's not what justifies us, but he does care about it. What Stendhal is arguing is think about the way the Jews viewed life. They're not nervous that God loves them. They know God loves them. They, they're, they're not actually works-based. We think the Old Testament's works-based. It's not. God delivers Israel out of Egypt before he gives them the law. They're not worried that they're gonna lose God's love because God has provided a means of atonement with the temple and sacrifices. So because they are secure in God's love, they're free to care about things down here. They get married and they have a bunch of kids and they build farms and they build businesses and they care. Yes, they care about the afterlife, but they also very much care about this life. We have a tendency not to care about this life at all because we think the goal is just to get to heaven. Yes, your life is a mist in that it's quick and it's not important compared to eternity, but it is not a mist in the way that God views it. If God just wanted to get you to heaven, he would have just elected souls and sent them to heaven. Instead, he sent Adam and Eve because he wants humans to live down here. He wants humans to work. He wants us to build businesses and build industries and be faithful. So this is a text that's weird for us because this is simply what Paul is saying. The foundation is Jesus. If you're building on that, you're a Christian. Some will build more faithfully, others less faithfully. And when God looks at your work, I think this testing with fire is probably more of a metaphor, but when God were to, were to send fire down upon your work, would it stand or would it crumble? I'll give you an example. When I was in uh, elementary school, I got to go to this class for smart kids. Now, don't, don't let that impress you because I've already told a story here at Parkway how I failed kindergarten, okay? So I got a little, little bit of dumb and a little bit of smart mixed together. So I was in this class and one of the things that we had to do is we had to, to build these uh, bridges made of toothpicks and see whose bridge could hold the most weight. So we were only given string, toothpicks, and glue and we were told to design a bridge that we're gonna hang a bucket from and we're gonna put weights on it at the end of class to see, or at the end of class after several weeks, to see whose bridge was the strongest. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, I do not have a creative bone in my body, okay? I like art, I like movies, I like music, I just can't do any of it. People are like, what should we title this sermon? And I'm like, sermon six, right? I don't have any, I don't have any creative stuff. And so these other kids in the class, their thing looks like the Golden Great Bridge and they have trusses and suspension. I don't even know what those words mean, but they sound bridgy. And so they're building these incredible bridges. And mine looks like a Neanderthal built it. It's like base, base, flat part, right? And the other kids, when it comes time to test them, the other kids, their bridges are not breaking. I mean, you can jump on it. You could actually use it as a bridge. You could put it up and a car could drive across it and it's totally fine. But with my bridge... We set it up and we like hang the bucket on it and it breaks, okay? And she's like, did you use glue? And I'm like, glue. I knew I should have just pushed the toothpicks together. Now, at no point was I kicked out of the class. At no point did my teacher not love me. At no point was that the case, but here's the deal. I was not faithful with that work when it was tested. Listen, I would have had more joy and I would have had a lot more fun had I been faithful to, to try to construct a good bridge, 
to see how the bridge should be constructed, to, to talk to other kids, to learn these kind of things. I didn't get kicked out of the class. Nothing happened. I still had that foundation. Nothing ultimately bad happened. But I lost out on joy because I was not being faithful when my work was literally made of wood and broke, okay, and broke. Now, here's where I want to end. There's, there's a tendency on a sermon like this, which is kind of strange, to think, okay, Zach told me to get out there and do my best for Jesus. That is not what I'm telling you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus did his best for you. Rather, what I want you to realize is what you do in this life matters. You don't earn salvation, but what you do in this life does matter to God. And the way, listen to this, if you can have one take home, the way that you build a good building with gold, silver, and precious stones is by looking at the foundation. It's by standing on the foundation. It's by staring at the foundation. That foundation is what makes your building stand. It's everything. You are placed on that foundation by God. You did not earn it. You did not lay that foundation. The apostles laid it for you. Is that foundation which allows you to build knowing that though I may build well some days and though I may build poorly some days because I'm on the right foundation, I still have that rock. I'm not on the sand that when the storms of life come destroys the house, that I have this foundation. So I wanna end by looking at something in verse 15 because if you're like me and you have an overly sensitive conscience, you have an overactive condemnation factor in your life like I do, I read this text and I think, I guess I'll just go to hell. I feel like most of my life has been wood, straw, and, and hay. Wood, wood, straw, hay, I think those are the three things. Stubble, some translations say. So I think, why even try? I've failed so many times. As I read through that list of building up your life, building up the church with wood, hay, and straw, I do a lot of that. So I read a text like this and I get discouraged. So I wanna end with something that you maybe missed in verse 15. Look again at the first part of verse 15, it says this. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But look at this next part, which you should underline. Though he himself will be saved. At no point is this meaning to say that God doesn't love you. At no point is this meaning to say that you're not really a Christian just because you're struggling with something like that. I love how in this text it goes out of its way to say the faithful guy's saved, the unfaithful guy's saved because ultimately they have Christ as the foundation. So I wanna end by reading a great quote, a quote I love by Charles Spurgeon on how the way that you grow in holiness, the way that you grow in sanctification is not by looking at sanctification. It's by looking at justification. The way you grow in holiness is not by looking at holiness. You'll swing and miss. The way you grow in holiness is by realizing that Christ is your foundation. All the stuff has already been done for you, so you're free to just enjoy. You can make a great bridge, not because you'll get kicked out of the class if you don't, but so that you'll have more joy when it's put under that weight. Here's the quote by Spurgeon. But remember, sinner, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even thy faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not to thy hope, but to Christ, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of thy faith. And if thou doest that, 10,000 devils cannot throw thee down, but as long as thou lookest at thyself, the meanest of those evil spirits may tread thee beneath his feet. It is not faith, it is not our doings, it is not our feelings upon which we must rest, but upon Christ and on Christ alone. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this text, though it's strange. We ask that you would send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to help us. We want to be faithful. We don't want to waste our lives. Though our lives are a mist and a vapor, we want to use that vapor well. So we pray that you would help us. I pray that Parkway would always be a church that builds on builds with gold, silver, and precious stones. 
Would you forgive us for all the times that we've wasted our time building with wood, hay, and straw? We need you to help us. We can't do what you've asked us to do, so we ask you to give what you've commanded. We can't do it because we're sinners, and you've asked sinners to to be holy, to be perfect. We can't. But you've provided because you've sent the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to while remaining God, take on flesh, dwell among us, live the life we should have lived, take the punishment for our sin that we deserve, death, because we've rebelled against you, the author of life. And you've raised him up showing that he is eternal. He is the son of God. He is the king and he's one day coming again. We thank you that that's the foundation. It's for his name and glory we pray. Amen.